I'm sick of it. I'm sick of that. I'm sick of this. Of what? Health. Health. I'm sick of health. Sick of health. Hello. We're back. It's season two, or what we're claiming is season two. We've been away for a little while. I think a couple of months. So apologies for the listeners. We didn't give any warning for that. But it, the reason was we finished season one. What a success it was. Um, and now we're back for season two. I'm happy to say, as always, I'm joined by Rob Littlewood. Hello. And David Wright. Hello. I think that was the first time I did it that way around. It's a change yeah, of season no, two. it was really weird. And there's two new things I want to talk about now anyway for season two. And the first of which I'm going to say first because she's in the room with us. We're introducing guests for season two. So welcome to the podcast, our first ever guest, Shaw Moncrief. Hello, Shaw. Hello, Joe. Thanks for having me. (laughs) Welcome to Sick of Health. And we will get into why Shaw's here and the theme of this week's episode shortly. Um, But basically, she's written a book all about what we're going to talk about today. So it's wonderful. The second exciting thing for season two that we're going to introduce now which is this is groundbreaking we have gone from not just a twitter account <laughs> to a team email oh yeah so now it's even easier to get in contact what have we with settled us. on now uh, it's yeah so that's a good point the email is team at sickofhealth.co.uk that is team at sickofhealth.co.uk a nice simple one for all the fans out there. I know a lot of you have been saying Twitter's not the biggest social media platform these days. We're working on Instagram. That's all on Rob. Um, <laughs> and we'll get, the, we'll get the email sorted for, well, the email sorted, sorry. So as with before, any feedback, any suggestions, any questions, any topics Team. you want, let us know. Team at SickVealth. Not the boys. No, we decided yeah. against the boys, the squad, <laughs> all those suggestions. The lonely heart. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was probably more suiting, but team is nice and simple for everyone. So, this week, as we've, it's a good topic, we've got our guests, we're going to dive straight in. And as I said, we'll get kind of onto Shah's book a little bit later. But Rob, the first thing, I guess, for this, the theme is it revolves around and kind of the focus point of it is this stat, okay, that we start with at the beginning, or a fact more than a stat, mm-hmm. and that is that for, I should say as well, that Chris is here as well, our sound guy that you remember oh, yeah. from last season, <laughs> and a quick point, um, we're in a different room yeah. due to the extra numbers, so if the sound's different, that is why, for the sticklers of you sound quality out there. Um, but back to the theme. <laughs> so for the four men in the room, all of which are under 45. David getting close, but under 45. <laughs> the thing that is most likely to kill us is ourselves. Uh, does that make sense? It does. You get what we're getting at? Sadly, yeah. Yeah, so it's the stat that if for men, in, for men globally under the age of 45, um, the, mo- the, the way they're most likely to die is from male suicide or suicide. Mm. Um, which is quite a harrowing stat, which, I mean, any initial thoughts on that? Did you know that was a, a thing? Yeah, actually, um, I'd say it's, with regards to healthcare, my knowledge being completely limited on it, it's probably one of the things that unintentionally I'm more interested and 
exposed to. I do. I, I take it reasonably seriously. Like I absolutely buy into everything that we're reading nowadays, and I think that I'm totally pro. The more support online, the better. Um, I was actually chatting to someone the other day about the NHS's offering on it. You know things like that. So you know, empirically, I don't have much yeah. to hand, but yeah, I'm I'm familiar with 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 the figure. So have you got any any thoughts on the stat? I mean, you're an expert in the area, but any initial thoughts? Um, well, since the Office of National Statistics began in 1981, more men have died than women, and if you consider that the rates of suicide have since halved for women, it actually hasn't really budged that much for men, which is, says quite a lot. It does, which is, I mean, it's starting to certainly paint a picture on the male side, and then just to complete the picture for the female side, the focus is male suicide, but female side, anyone, any guesses on the, what the biggest killer under the age of 45 is? We're saying it's not suicide. I mean, I would suggest something like breast cancer. You would be, cancer related. You, you would be entirely correct. That's good, I'm glad. Uh, okay. Um, so in terms of, so we talked about the male suicide stat and then just in terms of to paint it, to build that picture of men versus women within the entire population rather than under 45, that men, a higher ratio of men committing suicide versus women within the entire population holds true. Um, so when I say entire population, I mean age ranges. So for instance, this is the official stat, there's 15 point five deaths per 100,000 men, 4.9 suicides per 100,000 women are due to suicide. So roughly a third of the rate for men. So it holds true throughout the population. Mm -hmm. And then also holds true globally. So our initial stat was kind of a UK one, holds true globally. And in fact, Australia, it's, it's uh, 3.5 times higher in men. And then US, Russia and Argentina, 4.4 times higher. So we're uh, saying that this is like a male problem. It's not just young men and it's not particular to one region. It's just, it seems like it's, and it's ubiquitous no matter where you grow up in. It's cross cultures. Yeah, under yeah. the age of 45. Or, or no, so it's across all. So it's, it's more shocking that you're most likely to die yeah. uh, by your own hands under the age of 45. But still suicide rates as a whole okay. are much higher for men than they are for women, no matter what age you are. Just so kind of two factors, because yeah. certainly the youth thing is a fairly new thing. Uh, as in historically, it used to be the older you get, the more likely you are to commit suicide. But that, if you think of it as a graph, age, age versus suicide rate, that's flattened out. So age has less of an effect now. But the male aspect is certainly still dominant. Mm. And youth, obviously because young people, they're less likely to die of anything else suicide kicks in. Does that mm. make sense? Yeah, of course, yeah. I think you could definitely argue that suicide is very much a, a gendered thing and of, of the men and women that decide to seek um, you know, help, only, 30%, only 36% um, of men ever seek to um, get actual help or psychotherapy or whatever that might be. Mm. Um, you know, women are much more likely to share and engage and tell friends and family, so it's, a lot of it is external factors as well. Mm. Yeah, definitely. Um, those are the stats. The reason behind the stats is kind of what we want to talk about. So in terms of the reasons 
for committing suicide, obviously it's a fairly, I mean, fairly, no, it's a complex thing. But generally, there's three factors that people talk about, as in reasons for suicide, which are finance, relationships, and bereavement, which I think, I mean, I don't think any of us would disagree with that. No. It feels fairly mm -hmm. obvious in a way. But I guess, question for you here, Rob, would you think any of those three factors would differ between genders? As, and do you think any of those three would be more so for men and explain that difference? I think just hearing you explain those reasons, I probably subconsciously had an inclination to assume that we were talking about a male. Um, for I all think, three? Well, finance, definitely. I think traditionally the male has always been perceived as the breadwinner. I do think that's changing now. Yeah. But um, I think traditionally the male has always been considered the breadwinner, so I think it would definitely apply there. Um, bereavement, probably not so much. Like you say, I think women generally are famous for being good about talking about their feelings and sharing things. Yeah, yeah. Probably sometimes almost their detriment. <laughs> they get a bad reputation for it, it's joked about definitely, but in this situation <laughs> it's probably a good thing. Um, and what, what was the second relationships, one? Relationships. I don't know, I don't think that one's particularly gender specific. Because we were, because basically we agreed, certainly when David and I were talking about it, we agreed with finance. Yeah. Historically, anyway, there's that pressure on the male, which, and we said, obviously, it's phasing out now, but historically, do you agree with that, Charles? Yeah, I'd say um, that is very much linked to stress, though. It's the, the stress of being um, that kind of, uh, whether it's the father figure, whether it's bringing home the bacon, what, however you want to frame it. Mm -hmm. It's that stress of having to provide. Or also actually, especially in today's age, with social media, having to mm. have as much as what you see online, which I think yeah, is really yeah. detrimental to a lot of people's health. Definitely. And then we, interestingly, with the relationships one, where you said didn't think there was a difference, I read something anyway that said that... Um, Males, obviously, again, this is in general, it's thought that males invest much more in a kind of one relationship or two relationships, whether that's with their partner or one really close friend, whereas women have a wider support group. Right. Yeah. So if, and I guess it links to bereavement, if for whatever reason you lose that, all relationships, if you lose that one person that you've emotionally invested in, mm. then it can have a bigger effect. It's okay. something I read. I don't know if we feel that holds true, but... Interesting theory. Yeah, it's hard to know with that, and it's so hard, because when you think of your own friends and family, you can think of millions of... Well, not millions. millions of friends and family. You can think of examples that fit both ways, so... I've, se I've seen your number of friends on Facebook, and it is not one million. <laughs> Joe, on the other hand, let alone Joe's Joe. packing some serious friends on Facebook, aren't you? <laughs> well, you know, still not millions, though. And maybe I, don't, maybe I invest too widely and not in specific relationships. Anyway, this isn't about me. Um, but yeah, I think agreed. Certainly those three all agree they're true and there's very specific kind of um, stats about finance relating to increases in suicides at any time there's a downturn in the economy, like we saw in the 80s and 90s, increase in suicide. I've got a specific one here that showed that every 1% there's an of increase in unemployment there's a 0.79% increase in suicide. 
yeah. direct relationship there. That's really interesting that you were saying that it's been, it was really high in the 80s and 90s, then it started going down again. And the point when it started going back up was around 2000, 2007, 2008, mm. where we had the financial collapse, and then it started again going up. And it's only just now, the last couple of years, the suicide rates in men have started to tail off a little bit. So it's a huge factor. Um, and I think, I mean, I feel like the thing that links a lot of those together in terms of the male aspect, this idea or this stereotype of uh, the male not necessarily sharing as much, or the stereotype of the male having to live up to um, the breadwinner aspect, or um, men shouldn't show emotion, men shouldn't cry kind of thing, which leads us, I guess, to the title of Shah's book. Yeah. Which is? It's called Big Boys Cry. And the whole aim of the book, so between the ages of 18 and 24, suicide is the biggest killer. And over half of 14-year-old boys don't feel like they can talk to their fathers about their mental health, which is, you know, pretty shocking, actually, especially when these are pretty pivotal years when various things are going to be affecting them and they feel like they can't share. And, um, you know, if that... If it, if it then isn't shared and by the time they're 18 and 24, you know, we don't want that to be an option and, and that being suicide. So the whole aim of Big Boys Cry is to actually target younger kids, so seven to 10 year olds, and, and normalize the idea earlier that it's okay for big boys to cry. It doesn't matter how big or old you are. Um, the important thing is to tell someone and it doesn't make you silly. Um, and, you know, it follows the story of a, a boy called Billy and it's kind of a childhood awakening in which um, he has that moment where he experiences something and someone tells him, you know, big boys don't cry, only silly ones do. And I mean, I, I don't know if all of you had a pivotal moment when you were growing up in which you realised and recognised, oh, OK, boys aren't supposed to, you know, express as much emotion. I don't know, you know, whether that was something that you found or... I'm not sure if there was a pivotal moment for me. I think it's probably something that is socially ingrained in us. So perhaps progressively, uh, it's an idea that I came to terms with. Um, I, th I feel like as well, though, it's been as we've grown up, it's the perception of it's changed a little bit anyway, yeah. right? As in, when we were kids, that perception has changed, and it, as in, boys crying has become much more acceptable anyway as we've grown up. You know what's interesting, though? So. Um I did a reading at a school in uh, Ballum and at the beginning of the class, before I'd read the book to them, I said um, to all the boys and girls in the class, you know, who's more likely to cry, girls or boys? And they're 10 and immediately they shouted, girls! And then we read the book and we played some interactive games and then I asked them again and then I said, you know, who's more likely to cry? And then they went, both of us, and then they got it. So somewhere along the way, it's quite worrying that already these seven to 10 year olds already have this ideology of what girls are supposed to do and what boys are supposed to do. And, and that can, you know, going forward be actually really detrimental. And it's how are we doing more to focus on prevention? What are we doing and are we working with schools? So then when, you know, these kids are going into secondary school, it's not such a big deal if a, if a boy is being so expressive because I know you just said that. Yeah. Um, you know, it's different now and it's, it's more acceptable, but actually, you know, being in that school in Balham, to those kids, um, before we actually read the book and we played the games, it was seemingly 
still very boys don't cry. Which yeah, is interesting because that, that what I said then completely yeah, doesn't make sense. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So that I mean, fair enough. Mm. So then the original question holds true, and for me, I have no idea when that point came. To be honest, I think is it still is it is it currently true for me that I can express my feelings? I don't know. I think so. I do know that it is certainly I think more powerful for me to see a guy crying at the moment because probably it's relatively rare um, but also because we think that it's something that I suppose we shouldn't be doing um, but I do think the way that perception has changed over recent years to encourage us to talk about these things and to open up about these things has meant that I certainly feel more supportive towards people now who are in a situation like that and I recognise they must be going through something very serious if they feel the need to cry, as opposed to being at school. I remember people getting teased for like years yeah, if yeah, they yeah. cried. Guys, I mean, I yeah. definitely did. Do you now feel comfortable to cry? Or would you be willing to open up to your friends with an issue? Like, the, if you had a mental health issue, would you be willing to open up very honestly with them and potentially cry? Or would you feel awkward and that you would need to keep your manly persona in front of them? I think I'm probably quite a decent person to speak about this kind of thing. I, it's something I wholeheartedly embrace, speaking to my friends. It took, it took a while though, for sure. Yeah. I mean, Joe's experience at first hand, like, I've certainly had issues over the years that I felt I had to address. And there was definitely a point a couple of years back where I went to the doctors and I was like, look, I'm really depressed and I need to do something about it. And I felt sorry for the guy because he really didn't know what to do. Mm. But I was very lucky that I had my friends to talk to and initially, you know, it was very difficult for me to go to them and say, look, this is how I'm feeling. But as recent as a couple of months ago, I remember having a conversation with a friend of mine and thinking to myself afterwards, you know what, a few years ago, I never would have had that conversation. Yeah, yeah. And it wasn't necessarily me, it's also, you know, my friend on the other side of the fence who is also it's having the same impact on him and we're just generally becoming more, I think, emotionally intelligent mm -hmm. and realising that talking about these things is something that we should be doing and actually we need to be doing. Yeah, I think that's the key as well. It's the, the two-way thing, right? You can be very willing to open up, yeah. but is the person you're speaking to willing to listen and happy to because, yeah. I mean... We were talking about this last yeah, night. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. It's almost as hard to be the listener because, I mean, you... Uh, quite often ask someone in the day, oh, how are you doing? And all you want to hear is good, cheers, mate, bye. Yeah, you yeah. don't want them to say, oh, yeah, it's actually really, really tough because you're not a mental health expert. If no. someone starts opening up like that, it's actually really hard to know what to do. Yeah, and they've got, I mean, they've got this, there's the weird, well, not weird, it's a good concept now. They're certainly introducing an office's stuff of the uh, mental health first aiders, mm. where they actually, you know, you obviously, your first aider, you train people to put plaster on and do CPR or whatever it is. These mental uh, first aiders are trained in those conversations, which I think is quite an interesting idea because I probably react terribly to those kind of conversations. And I mean, the way I deal with it is almost like we do on this podcast. Maybe, you know, not make a joke out of a bad situation, but try and laugh it off kind of thing, yeah. which is not ideal. Again, another quite masculine response, isn't it? Yeah, are there certain people that based on how they present themselves as, as men, that as a result of how they you know present themselves to the public and to you and your friends you'd be like oh i definitely couldn't share with him even though he's meant to be a very good friend of yours perhaps he's quite macho or 
you know, he has that kind of persona where you would feel like you wouldn't want to share with him because you didn't, you wouldn't, in a weird way, want to feel almost emasculated. Mm, definitely, absolutely, say. yeah, one hundred percent. You have friends where you kind of you want to be, well, I don't know, you're slightly more competitive with them, maybe, or you're, yeah, you want to kind of have a facade, whereas other people you have a much more emotionally in tune relationship. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. I, I think they're probably friends of ours who I think I perceive in a way to be maybe slightly more traditional and less open to talking about these things that I would worry if I would speak to them about an issue I were having psychologically. They just would be completely yeah. frozen. They wouldn't know what to do and, and they're probably more of the ilk that, you know, just man up and get on with it. Go on, go on, go on. Oh, I was just going to say, really interestingly, I was at, um, I was invited to this uh, army dinner. And um, because over the last couple of years, I've, um, you know, when I talk about male mental health or I'm, you know, with charities or, or I'm in schools, um, it's a very open, positive space. And the people that I'm talking to are really open to what I'm saying and that it's very receptive. However, someone at this army dinner... <laughs> Um, I was. Really the oh God, I regret it so much. Um, I was either side of these two gentlemen, and they were asking me what I was doing for work, and I just started explaining. Well, actually, we've just received all the funding for my book, and I explained what it was about, and immediately I just got completely shouted down. And um, yeah, it was actually it was actually a really upsetting experience, and they were like. You know, that is the most ridiculous thing. I can't believe that you've actually gone out of your way to do this. He was just like, you know, men have to grow up and stop all this wishy-washy and X, Y, and Z. And I, I felt like I was in a completely different year. And I didn't actually know how I was even supposed to respond. So I just totally changed the subject because those particular people, there was no changing um, or having a, um, a grown-up conversation as such because they didn't want to hear it. And... I think, you know, that army mentality, I, you know, where you have to be very tough and you have to be a certain way. And I, I don't know whether um, you agree, but maybe there's an, a lad culture within the army that, you know, people don't want to express emotion. And I actually think, you know, in the army, there is a huge problem within it. Mm. How old was that guy? Oh, I feel like I can't really say because my housemate will know I'm talking about. Um, <laughs> he's old, but he's similar age to us. Well, no. So one was um, one was a father, and one was right. a um, was a twenty something. Because that sounds like a generational gulf. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right there. And I think at that point, for a good little discussion in terms of that aspect, um, we're going to throw in another little stat just to possibly confuse things slightly. Okay. But David, you got something for us, haven't you? Yeah, so it's actually, um, it's quite shocking actually, so a lot more men kill themselves than women, but the attempted suicide is actually three more times as many women attempt suicide than men. So if you think three times as many men actually do it, it's, it's shocking, that statistic. Yeah, so, so we're saying while more men die of suicide, more women attempt it which from a lot of the stuff we've just talked about doesn't make sense, right? Yeah. No, it's strange. Yeah. So there's... Uh, <laughs> least, yeah. yeah. Well, I'm just thinking about the theory behind it. So, like yeah, how, well, what do you think? How... I'm trying not to sound 
potentially up offensive here like how are they trying to do it is it completely different to men is it yeah maybe women aren't as committed in the sense that maybe men in a weird way are braver and go to you know higher extremes and maybe women are just you know maybe it is a cry for help and that's why they don't go to such extreme levels i don't know i yeah, honestly don't they, know that's exactly what people think are the two things so uh, men tend to go for more violent measures and it's thought that, yeah, they have a greater intent on killing themselves when they have a suicide attempt. Whereas for women, quite often, the more it is just a cry out for help and trying to get people more involved in their, um, in their problem that they have. And men also tend to be a little bit more impulsive and the act of a violent suicide, the kind of the final motion of it, needs that greater kind of impulsivity. So if, and as you were kind of alluded to, the measures vary a lot more. So you have more violent suicides, so it's more like hanging or shooting for men, whereas women are much more likely to overdose on drugs, something which has a much lower success rate, mm. luckily. But interesting, right? I think, I think even just you saying those stats, just the emphasis on why prevention over cure is just so important, yeah. you know, how, how do you stop people getting to that point in which they think those are their options? Mm -hmm. um, and I think, you know, the bottom line really in that respect is education and educating people even younger um, than they are. Yeah, massively. And good point to go on to kind of the in interventions part of which number one is education, which obviously your book's going to hopefully go a large way to do. When's it, when's the published date? July? Oh, uh, supposedly the 23rd of July, but nice. we're having some post-production problems. Um, but it should sign, be coming out. <laughs> yeah, you can. Yeah, we, it should be on out on Amazon as well. Um, and yeah, I'll send I'll send you the links. Cool, and we'll obviously we'll we'll tweet about it through our massive Twitter yeah, following. We'll plug it. Um, yeah. But alongside education, there's a few other cool little bits going on just to finish on. Um, so one comes from America and it's called the Zero Suicide Alliance and it's this idea that they're aiming for zero deaths by suicide is the philosophy and the way they're going about it is they've tried it in this one isolated kind of community and few hospitals and what, they test, what they've tried out is that every single time someone comes in for a you know, primary consultation so with a GP or something like that no matter what the problem they've come in about is, maybe they've got diarrhea, maybe they've got a cold, whatever it is, the doctor asks at some point, uh, have you ever had any suicidal thoughts? Do you have any mental health issues? They, every single time they ask that question. Oh, really? So it becomes quite standardised. Yeah, and, and I mean, it's just an interesting idea and a very isolated situation, but from this one situation, it reduced suicide by 80% is the stat they've released, which is pretty outrageous. And they're bringing that to the UK now. There's some people kind of petitioning for it uh, in the UK. So maybe that will come to something. Such an easy thing to implement. Yeah. And I mean, there's always the argument of, well, we do what, you know, start doing that for everything. But I think in this situation, it's far more important than anything else because the cure, in a sense, is talking. Yeah. Right. Well, in the UK, they're doing loads of great things. Obviously, you've got CALM, which is the biggest men's mental health charity, yeah, yeah, but there are yeah. so many other initiatives. You've got future of men that are coming out. You've got um, the Book of Man as well. There, there are so many different initiatives and stories and talks now and you know things that are even just completely for men. There's a, 
um, an organization called Mentality, Mentality Live, and all their audiences and their events are just for men. Um, you know, whereas I think other um, men's mental health events, it's still mixed. And, mm. and this is to have kind of create a, a space as, as such that people can feel comfortable with sharing a, a, amongst other men. I heard about a really good one the other day called Andy's Man Club. At the moment, it's exclusively in, in the north. But this guy's friend killed himself, I believe, and he created this um, community in his honour. And they've got, I want to say it's over 10 different locations that they host these functions now where men just get together and they kind of chat about everything. And it's like a group therapy type thing. But I find that the fact that it's specific to males probably makes it particularly powerful because I think men are probably more scared of talking to men more than than women. So suddenly you're in a safe space and you realise you're not mm -hmm. alone, which are two huge obstructions to, you know, what we were talking about with Remedy, which is just talking about it. Yeah. There's nothing particularly scientific in it, is there? Definitely. And the, I mean, as you say, in the UK, kind of the charity work is really good and calm, certainly even research in this episode, you see it everywhere. Mm. Everyone's backing it, the stuff they're doing is wicked. They've given us a testimonial, have, have you know? They? Yeah. Amazing. <laughs> That's almost as important as the sick of health testimonial, which will be, <laughs> will be coming. Um, and then quickly, other couple of things. So physical barriers to suicide in terms of intervention. There's some obvious ones out there in terms of, you know, Golden Gate Bridge, they're putting a net underneath it, so you jump into the net. And then one really cool one, is so in Japan, there the rail the train stations surely one of the highest suicide rates in the world. Very high, yeah. very high, and their trains their train system is the busiest in the world, and they're very, you know, everything has to be on time. Mm. So they're just trying to cut out anything that could delay trains, of which obviously suicide mm. is a massive one. Um, and what they've done in these train stations is install blue lights just on the platforms. They've put blue oh. lights, and it's meant to be a psychological nudge, I think they called it, right? Yeah, it's nudge theory. Nudge they have theory. it for a lot of different things, but. Um, um, and so they found, basically, from installing blue lights on platforms, they reduced 84% uh, reduction uh, in suicides in, on Japanese train stations, in Tokyo in particular. But I mean, just really, the stats seem ridiculous that putting yeah. a blue light on a platform can have such crazy effect, yeah. but amazing. And then the last thing, which is kind of cool, is people have been looking at predicting kind of susceptibility to suicide and people who might try and attempt suicide. And this is where the whole AI conversation can come into it because people have been trying to do this for a few years with kind of meta-analyses and stuff like that. And they've, um, remember hearing one bloke say they had literally, trying to do it through meta-analyses, they had no luck. They could no better predict suicide than they could predict heads or tails flipping a coin kind of thing. Mm. But then they've introduced AI into the equation where they look at, I think it's like over 800 factors that influence um, kind of someone possibly attempting suicide. And this, this is really early on, but they've initial trials looking at 5,000 patients. And what they've come out saying is the algorithm they've created, 84% accurate in predicting whether someone would attempt suicide in the next week. And then really interestingly, 80% accurate in predicting whether someone would attempt suicide in the next two years. And what do they do then if you are within that percent 
of people that is looking likely to commit suicide? So, I, I mean, I guess that's the key question, isn't it? Because the, the paper certainly, does, certainly doesn't look at that. It's about predicting. Um, yeah, it was something that the British um, Psychological Society just said on this is that uh, treatment and prevention should be geared towards supporting men to build skills in dealing with the issues they face. So they're definitely gearing treatment to be along those lines that we've been talking about is about skill building, emotional skill building. Well, they're opening up um, mind gyms. I don't know if I said this earlier, but they're... So I know, I think, you know Sanctus, which is the mental yeah, health, yeah. Cool, yeah. And, um, you know, the two founders behind that, they really suffered with their mental health because originally, I think the backstory, and correct me if I'm wrong, but they had a very successful startup. I think they were given about a million pound seed money about that. And then I think everyone thought they were doing exceptionally well and actually things weren't going as well as everyone thought. And off the back of that, they then wrote a blog post about mental health within startups, which just took off because so many people within the startup industry obviously really suffer with their mental health. And then they went on to set up Sanctus and, and, and I think they hope to now open all these um, mind gyms on the high street so people in startups or corporates can go into them and and you know they can get the tools and the skills and understanding to um you know process how they're feeling cool google that yeah yeah it's very cool. about that um i think at that point i will draw us to a close i mean i think it's some good discussion some it's some some deep discussions yeah, we've had another one of those episodes haven't we but it's good yeah. three blokes sharing yeah. <laughs> and, and a wonderful guest in chart, obviously. Um, so I think lots to think about. Listeners, let us know what you thought. Um, please get in touch if you've got any questions or things we want to raise or topics that can come out of this. And thank you very much, Shah, for joining us, our first guest, and what a wonderful guest. Absolutely. Remind us of all the, the book details. Uh, so Big Boys Cry will be out end of July. You can find it on Amazon. It's for seven to 10 year olds, and it's for both boys and girls um, because obviously we want both sexes to feel you know just as comfortable with boys expressing themselves and um, yeah hopefully we'll, we'll see the book in a lot of schools and libraries so please go out and buy it i can't wait i can't wait and obviously keep an eye on our social media stuff when it comes out we'll be all over it because uh, it's wicked um, but i think we'll end it there so thank you all it's been an absolute pleasure as always and we'll see you next time Sick, so sick, so sick of health.